Well, it's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, we're in the book of Acts. We're actually starting a series in the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, that'd be the place to go. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. Uh, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Um, so if you can find your way there. The, the title, I guess, of the series is Calling, Creed, and Christians. And so these are the circles that we're going to be walking through uh, when we do this book of Acts. The, the first is the calling of the people of God on the people of God to take the message of Christ to the nations, to the neighborhoods, however you want to look at that. Um, and, and this we'll see over and over. It's a big part of what the book of, is about. Also, creed. What we see in the book of Acts is that, that this message starts to emerge as, as the, the disciples are taking this gospel out. You start to see this composite picture of what the true gospel is, what the message of Christianity really is, and that emerges throughout the preaching in this book. And the third section that we'll kind of be looking at has to do with Christians. And specifically, in the first third of the book, what you get is this amazing snapshot. It's a profound snapshot of what the early communities of faith looked like. How did they interact with each other? What did they see their lives about? How did they go through this, this Christian life that was given to them? And so these are the circles that we're going to be running in. And this morning we're going to get a start uh, I hope that will send us on that path. Before we do, I'm just going to pray again and ask the Lord to uh, bless these next months as we're in this book and today as well. So, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you a people who have been called by your name, a people who have been forgiven through the blood of Christ. And a people, to one degree or another today, Father, who are probably weighed down with the issues of life. God, we still live in a broken world and, and things are plaguing our minds and our hearts even this morning. And so I pray that you would lift those burdens. God, for this next time, these, these moments together in your word, as we come under your authority and you speak to us through the Bible, Father, I pray that you would lift those things from our hearts so that we can hear you. God, would you work in us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that over these next months that, that what I say from this book is, is what you want said to your people. God, we, we ask that, that what we see in this book would challenge us to the core. And, and God, give us a spirit that welcomes that challenge. We want to reflect Christ in this world. We want to live for his glory we want to advance your kingdom. And we want to listen to your voice in all of it. So God, we give you this time and we ask you to work by your power for the glory of your son. And it's in his name we ask. Amen. Well, I was about uh, 20 years old and I was in maybe my first week or two as a believer. Um, I, had, I had gotten saved and uh, early on I read the end of all four Gospels. So I read about the betrayal and the crucifixion and the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And then I turned the page. And the next page was the book of Acts. To be honest, I had no clue what the book was about. I just assumed that it was the continuation of the story. After all, it was the next page. That only made sense to me. And so uh, I dove in and I, I devoured this book of Acts. I read very rapidly through it. 
And I, I came to the end of the book, chapter 28 of Acts, um, but I didn't really know that it was the end. I, I, I sped through and, and saw these amazing things and Paul and he's going and he's planting churches and he's ministering and he's preaching and all the other disciples are doing this as well. And then we get to the end and Paul's in Rome uh, preaching the gospel still, awaiting trial uh, from Caesar. And I'm like, oh, this is a wonderful story. And I turn the page and what's the next book? Romans. This is the rest of the story of what happens in Rome. And I was so excited for about three minutes and then I figured out, did I, did I miss something? And I frantically, for the next days, was looking through my Bible, trying to figure out where's the rest of this whole thing. Um, since then, I've come to realize something that, that I, I hope we have imprinted on our hearts through this series, and that is this. We are the rest of the story. We are the rest of the story of this book. This book about the gospel going forth and this message of Christ going forth to the nations, to the neighborhoods, everywhere that these disciples were scattered, the gospel is going forth and then it ends. But it doesn't end. Because you and I are the rest of the story. You're the means by which God is going to do this. I have a couple of guys I know from uh, seminary who are with an organization, church planning organization. It's called Acts 29. If you've read the book of Acts, you know that it stops at chapter 28. And the whole point of this organization is to say, yeah, it's on us now. We, we're the rest of this. We're going to keep planting churches. We're going to keep preaching the gospel. We're going to keep advancing the kingdom for the glory of Christ. So I've been very excited to get to this book, to this series because I believe, I believe God is on the move in this church. By that I mean this group of people who call this their church home. I, I think God is on the move in this church. I, I think God is on the move in this city. There's a lot of great churches who love the gospel, who are preaching it faithfully, um, who are exhorting their people to live for Christ. God is moving his people to seek him in prayer, to witness for him boldly, to live for him wholeheartedly and it is a joy to be a part of that. What we need to do as we think about God working among us is a lot of times we need to recalibrate what our lives are really about. Individually, but then also as a church. And this is why I'm so excited that we're in the book of Acts because what we get here is a snapshot of the early church. But, but the question that often comes is, what is the book of Acts about, really? See, people come to the book of Acts and they say something like, uh, this is about the apostles and their preaching. And to some degree that's true. Others come and say, well, this is about the church and, and how it began. It's just an account of the beginning of the church. Well, true, we have some of that. Others say, well, this is about Paul primarily and his journeys and his work. Yeah? Some people think this is about uh, a phenomenon uh, we'll call for now tongues. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, please don't worry about it. We'll get to that later. Some think this is about persecution and how the church should move through that. And certainly there's some examples for us. But, but today in these first verses, we're going to be in five verses today, I think that Luke lays out a composite sketch of what this entire book is going to be as it unfolds before us. Luke writes this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now real quick, just some housekeeping. This book is written to Theophilus. There's another book in your New Testament written to that same person. Anybody remember what book that is? Gospel of Luke. Acts is written, scholars agree, by the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And that's going to help us at times to understand. Luke was very careful on what he recounted. But knowing that, we come back to this, the original question. What is the book of Acts about? What is it truly trying to get across to us? To answer that, for you type A people, I'm going to give you five things that I see in this introduction which I think comprise what the book is about. So if you're that person, you just write down five, five numbers right now and we'll get to them. For the rest of you, you just know that when I say five, you're almost lunchtime, okay? Five things in this text. The first one is this. Jesus commands his people. Jesus commands his people. See this in verse 2. Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now Luke here in the book of Acts assumes that certain things have already happened and this is one of them, that Jesus had commanded his followers, his disciples, his apostles he calls them, here. It's one of the things that had happened before Acts gets going. And so we have to ask, well, what is it that Jesus commanded his apostles? What is it that Jesus looked to his people and said, this is what I want you to do in this world. These are your callings, your exhortations, your imperatives. What were they? Well, there's a lot of them. If you've read the Gospels, there's a lot of things that Jesus commands. He lays out for his people. He commands us to love one another as he has loved us. And so all men will know that we're his disciples. It's a command. We're commanded to reconcile with our brothers before we come to worship. We're commanded to take the plank out of our own eye before we get the speck out of our brother's eye. We're, we're commanded to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All that we are. There's many things that we're commanded to do as the people of Jesus Christ. So the question is, is there anything commanded by Jesus that would have sort of risen to the top at this point? Is there any command that, that would have been maybe ringing in the ears of the apostles at this moment? I think there is. It's captured in many ways in, in different parts of the New Testament, but the bottom line is this. There was a command to take the gospel. There was a command to take this message of Christ crucified for sin, risen in victory, and take it to the nations. It's expressed in different ways, in different places. We'll read Matthew's account. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Next week we'll, we'll see this command given to us in the sense of being witnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the bottom line is that this is given to us. 
This mission, this command is entrusted to the people of God. Now, some of you will read that and say, well, Kyle, yeah, that's, that's good, but here, let's be specific. Jesus is commanding his apostles. We're not his apostles. This command was for them. This, this, this isn't for us. Jesus was speaking to them. That's true. But see, here's what's interesting about that Great Commission passage in Matthew. It says, go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them all that I have commanded you. Which includes the command to make disciples. In other words, what we hear of Jesus commanding and calling and exhorting his disciples, his apostles whom he had chosen, trickles down to us. Their calling is our calling. Their command is our command. Their mission is our mission. This is for us. This is to us. And this becomes the mission of the church, not just for apostles, but for everyone who calls Christ Lord. It is a great commission, a great calling, a great command. One of the things you're going to discuss this week in your, in your groups is this question. Does this sometimes feel like a privilege or a burden? And if we're honest, sometimes it feels like a burden. I, I know I'm, I'm supposed to take this message and I'm supposed to be his witness in this world, but sometimes, Lord... This is meant to be a privilege. I mean, I mean, just step back from this for a second. The eternal Son of God takes on human flesh to live a life you couldn't live, to die a death you should have died, to take all of the wrath and penalty for your sin upon himself. He substitutes himself. He rises in victory over Satan's sin, death, and hell. And before he ascends, he looks to his followers, a ragtag bunch, and commands them to steward this message. The risen king has invited his followers into his mission. To be sure, this is a command to be obeyed. This is not a suggestion to be considered, but it is a command with privilege and honor. Number one is Jesus commands his people. Number two, Jesus grounds his people. Verses two and three. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through his Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, verse three, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. It, see, if number one is true, that, that we're invited into this, this calling and this command and this commission to take the gospel out. Well, we ask, what is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus died and rose for our forgiveness so that we might be made right before God so that we might be reconciled to him. So that's the gospel. But it all depends on this issue of resurrection. And so this is why this is so gracious of God to do. This is why this is a gracious thing of Luke to write for us. Because let's face it, we're in the position of, of Theophilus. Theophilus was not a person who witnessed the resurrection firsthand. 
None of you are in that situation either. We stand like Theophilus having to, to believe the reports of other people. And so it's gracious of Luke to write, it's gracious of God to give us this, that, that he gives us these proofs and he appears to them during 40 days. So that the gospel breaks into a situation in which, if it's a lie, everybody knows it's a lie. But it's not a lie because everybody was there. We'll talk more about resurrection in a couple of weeks. But the issue is this. God is trying to ground his people in the very message that they're to take to the nations. The NIV reads this way in verse 3. He showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs. The old King James, I believe, says infallible proofs. The point is this. That Luke is trying to give us something. God is trying to give us something here which removes doubt. Which, which convinces people who, who can't first-hand witness the resurrection. He's trying to give us something that grounds the truth of this message takes away our wavering. Jesus commands his people to proclaim and advance the gospel and then he grounds his people with many proofs that this is reality. Number three, Jesus teaches his people. Verse three, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, quite honestly, this is a difficult topic. If you've been a Christian for some time, this kingdom of God language is difficult. And people write many books on it. And they're smarter people than I am. So I'm going to paint this thing in very broad strokes for you that I think everybody would agree on. The kingdom of God is this. God's people in God's place under God's rule through God's king. God's people, us, Part of the kingdom in God's place. I don't think that's yet. It'll come. Under God's rule through God's king. And that's Jesus. See, in the New Testament and specifically in Luke's writing, the kingdom is, is seen in two different ways. One is out there. Okay, so, so think of this, that the kingdom is what's to come. And this is probably a common way that you think about the kingdom because we're so used to thinking about the kingdom of heaven, right? So we think of something far out in the future, like one day we'll, we'll be in the kingdom. And there's a lot of truth to that. Listen to a couple of things Jesus says. In Luke 22, when he's uh, with his disciples at the Last Supper, he says, for I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's looking forward. That's not yet. We're looking past today. In Luke 13, he says, people will come from east and west, from north and south, when he's gathering his people at the end of the age, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Well, that's not yet. There's a day coming, but we're looking forward to this kingdom. So you say, well, that's wonderful. So what we're to go out and proclaim, Jesus taught his disciples about this future kingdom. Yes, but that's not all. There is a future reality to the kingdom, but listen to these other aspects. In Luke 10, he sends his disciples out to preach, and he says, Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in, it, in that town. And say to them, listen, the kingdom of God has come near to you. 
But I thought kingdom was future. Luke 11, but if it is by the finger of God, this is Jesus talking, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Luke 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Or among you. So there's, there's a, a, a future reality and we look forward and we say the kingdom will come and we will be with him and, and, and it will be consummated in all its fullness. That will come. The kingdom of heaven will come. And at the same time, the blessings of that kingdom, some of them, have reached back into our own time so that we can say the kingdom has already dawned. There's already people God's people, under God's rule, recognizing God's king. And that means that the kingdom has come already. No, not in its fullness. But the kingdom has come. And you say, what does this have to do with the book of Acts? Isn't the book of Acts about people taking the gospel? Why are we worried about the kingdom? In chapter 8, Luke records this. He says, after Philip is preaching... When they believed Philip as he preached good news, that is the gospel, as he preached the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel has as its content truth about the kingdom. Yes, that it's future, but yes, that it's present. And that it all comes through Jesus. This is why the gospel preaching has to do with the kingdom and Jesus. And so Jesus commands his people and he grounds his people and he teaches his people. Number four, he reminds his people. Verse four, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, one of the questions that we will get to in this series is this idea of what is the baptism of the Spirit. And there's a lot of ink that's spilled over that. We're not going to get too far into that today. But the question here has to do with what is the baptism of the Spirit, specifically as it's laid next to John's baptism. Now, we're talking about John the baptizer, John the Baptist. Why would we compare John with the baptism of the Spirit? Now, let's think for a minute. John had a message. He was out there preaching repentance, that is, turn back to God, to all these people of Israel who had turned astray from him, who were in sin, who were in idolatry. His message is repent, turn back. And what was he doing when people identified with this message? They're coming to him in the river, and if they said, I want to repent, I want to turn back to God, what happened to them? They were baptized. They were immersed, dunked in water. And they were identified in with or by that water baptism. But see, this wasn't just a physical sign. And this is the key. See, what was happening there didn't have any effect in and of itself. You see, here's what wasn't happening. People weren't coming down to John on the riverbank 
shaking their fist at God. I hate God. I love my idols. I love my sin. And then all of a sudden, John grabs them while they weren't looking and dunks them. And while they're under, they come back up. I love God. I want to repent now. Thank you for getting me under the water. That's not how this was working. The, the water was a symbol. It was a ritual of identification. Remember that phrase. It was a ritual of identification with the message and the ministry of John the Baptist. So if you were wanting to identify with his ministry, you would be baptized. You would be identified by water baptism. Now, here's what Jesus says. John baptized with water. He identified you with water baptism. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He looks to his followers, the people of God, says, now what will identify you is the Holy Spirit of God coming upon you. Listen, if, if you're new to this Christian thing, let me just... The Holy Spirit is God himself moving into your life when you come to Christ, when you get saved. And I'm, I tried to describe this. I butchered this first service, so we'll destroy the tape. But here's, here's my best shot. The Holy Spirit is this presence in your life that leads you to things that you wouldn't normally be led to. Okay? And it happens both positively and negatively. Negatively, when you're walking in a path of sin, the Holy Spirit is unbelievably at work in you to convict you of sin, to bring you back to God, uh, to mediate the presence of Christ. And See, this is why there's times, there's times when I've offended people and I've had to go and seek forgiveness and they didn't even think it was sincere because the Spirit was <laughs> prompting me to do that. I, I had to go do it. And, and not enough time had elapsed. We're, we're supposed to let a lot of time elapse, right? We're supposed to let grudges go for a while at least before we deal with them. And, and we go quickly. Why? Because the Spirit of God doesn't let us do that. And some of you know this. That, that the moment you got saved, from that moment, there was some drastic work of the Spirit in your life convicting you of sin and bringing you toward holiness. Anybody? Amen? Okay. That happens. And that's this part of this. There, there's this other part of the Spirit of God that, that prompts us in this positive way that, that gives us this desire for holiness and this desire for God and this desire for prayer and this desire for witness and boldness and all of that. And I think Jesus is saying that, that as you, you come to Christ, that you'll be identified as his followers by the presence of that spirit in your life. Yes, there's, there's other things that happen and there's, there's giftings and empowering. But this is the presence of God. And as he comes upon you, people will say, they're his people, they're, they're kingdom people. interesting what Jesus says here. Wait for the promise of the Father. There's a couple of things that he could be referring to here. Probably one of them is his own words. Remember in John's gospel as 
His disciples are getting a little nervous because Jesus is not going to be with them. He's, he's going to die. They, they know this. and He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Many places throughout that section in the Gospel of John, Jesus was looking to his disciples saying, no, you have to understand, this is the Spirit who will come and here's what he will do. He will witness about me. He will convict the world of sin. This, this is his work. He is called the helper, the comforter, the counselor. He will come beside you. He will, he will guide you and prompt you to live this life for my glory. It may have been that promise that Jesus refers to, but... There's something else that, that this might be talking about. You see, if you start to go through the New Testament and look at everywhere where the word promise is used, throughout the New Testament, almost without fail, it has to do with something that God promised in the Old Testament. Something that, that God had told his people, this is coming one day, this is coming one day, this is coming one day. And so I started to ask the question, well, but the Holy Spirit, this is a New Testament concept. This is something new, right? There's this passage in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. It says this, To the people of God, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness or your sin. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Spirit in the lives of the people of God was something, something that had been promised long ago. Yes, Jesus connected with this. Yes, he reiterated this promise to his followers. But this is something that was part of, of, of this Old Testament hope. That God would move in. That God would do a work. That God would dwell in the lives of his people. And Jesus says, wait. Because it's coming soon. Number four, Jesus reminds his people of the promise of the Spirit. Finally, number five. Jesus works through his people. Jesus works through his people. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to his apostles. Of this whole message, this is probably the place where I wanted to get the most. If there's one thing that I think, lays out the theme of the book of Acts, this is it. Did, did you catch it in those verses? Look again at, at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, now if you're an underliner type of person, many of you are, underline that word, began. This is very specific, the way that Luke writes this. 
all that Jesus began to do. Okay, so, so he wrote a gospel, the gospel of Luke. And, and we know that that's about Jesus doing in this world. We see it. He's out there. He's healing. He's, the kingdom's breaking in. He's casting out demons. Jesus is doing. But Luke says, that was all that Jesus began. Now, you don't use language like that unless you believe that something continues. That was what Jesus began, and the implication is, now I'm going to write about what Jesus continued to do. Now, if you're thinking this just took a turn for the weird, you're right. Because Jesus isn't there. In the book of Acts, Jesus isn't there. You read on about five or six verses, and what you'll see in the book of Acts is that Jesus ascends to heaven. The right hand of God enthroned in heaven as king of kings, that's great, but he's not here. So what am I supposed to do with this? Well, all that Jesus began to do, there's no Jesus to keep doing. Unless, unless he decided to work through his people. Remember, Jesus is the one who said, I will build my church. How does he do it? Let me me fast forward with you. If if you want to turn here, you can. Acts chapter 9. We'll get here later. But I want to give you a snapshot of something. This is the story of, of the Apostle Paul's conversion. Saul, who later became Paul... I want you to see something key here that we may not hit on again. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. That's uh, north in Israel. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him Saul, Saul why are you persecuting me? And he said who are you Lord? And he said I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Here's the problem. In this text and throughout the New Testament Paul was persecuting the church. He was persecuting the people of God. He was persecuting the body of Christ. And Jesus says, Why are you persecuting me? Did you ever wonder why why the New Testament uses this body language? Probably multiple reasons. Yes, the, the, the body, as you look at the church it shows that we're interconnected. One's a foot, one's a hand, one's an ear. We all have different functions, in other words. That's something that the New Testament sets forward. But, but I think it's also this sense in which the body is the thing that we use. It's the concrete, material, physical, however you want to phrase that, thing that we use in this world to carry out our purposes, to do what we want to do. I do what I want to do in this world by using my body. And then we say, 
Jesus has a body, the church. There's a unity between Christ and his people so that Jesus can even say when his people are being persecuted, why are you persecuting me? You are, you are his body. You are his mechanism in this world for carrying out his purposes in this world. That is a profound reality and that is a joyful reality. But this isn't at the end of the day you doing something. This isn't about the church doing something. Paul would later say one plants, one waters, but, but God gives the growth. This isn't about what we're doing. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's the Lord who comes into the harvest. He's the Lord who's sent out from the harvest. Many of you are on the first page of the book of Acts. So I want you to let your eyes float up to the title page. Okay, The title on the first page of the book of Acts. I'm going to do something that will get me in trouble with other pastors probably. Okay? Tell me the title of this. The Acts of the Apostles. Don't do this physically because it will get me in trouble. Do this mentally. Cross out that title. This isn't the Acts of the Apostles. This is the Acts of the risen Jesus through his people. This is what Jesus continues to do in building his church. He uses his body. He uses people. You and me. And, and while we might not think that that's the greatest plan, we look around, we look inside at our own inadequacies and, and our own issues and we say, that's not a very good plan. Jesus looks and says, that's my body. And that's how I'm accomplishing what I will accomplish in this world question we began with today was this. What is the book of Acts about? Here's, here's my best shot. The book of Acts is an account of the work of Jesus Christ through his church empowered by his spirit to advance his kingdom. This is a book about the work of Jesus through his church empowered by his spirit to advance his kingdom. And the reason why this matters so much is because the book ends at chapter 28 and then you look around this room and this is chapter 29. Amen.